very special episode of the Northern Spin Extra podcast. My name is Michael Taylor. As always, I'm joined by happy, chappy, happy, clappy Chris Maguire. In a second, we're also going to be hearing from a very, very special guest, an economist whose services have been very much in demand over the last 24 hours, dissecting Jeremy Hunt's spring budget. But before that, a few thank yous, Chris. Yes, absolutely, Michael. Nice to see you again. Uh, we couldn't do this podcast without our friends at What Media, our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen. So thank you to them, three great companies. Today's special guest is Nicola Hedlum, who appeared on a Northern Spin Extra podcast with us in November and went down an absolute treat with our listeners. Now, by way of background, Nicola is a woman who has, in one way or another, devoted her life to the Northern Powerhouse, first in academia and then as a civil servant. Yeah, Nicola is a former head of the Northern Powerhouse and is now the Chief Economist and Head of Public Sector at Manchester tech firm Red Flag Alert. So let's give a big Northern Spin welcome to Nicola Hedlam. Be honest, am I the only economist you know? No, <laughs> my camera's in MIPIM. <laughs> no, but yeah, he's the only other economist I know. <laughs> yeah, no, we know lots of economists, Nicola, but... Uh, you're the best. You're the best. That's why we. That's why we've come to you. So before we do a deep dive on the budget, how would you sum it up in one sentence? Oh well, let's let Chris go first. I liked his sentence. Well, it's quite a long sentence actually. I think people talk about the word fiscal drag. So I mean, corporation tax is going up from 19p to 25p. Tax thresholds haven't increased in line with inflation. So people like you know us will be paying more. I think the two things that stood out probably childcare and getting people back to work. But this is a budget to win the next election for next year. It's not a budget for this year. And Michael, what was yours? Yeah, a little bit. I think um, I was particularly taken by all the stuff on devolution. I've literally written an academic thesis about it. So the anorak in me was like cracking my knuckles trying to get stuck into that stuff. But in the meantime, I had to go through all the sort of marginal tinkering around the edges. I think I, I was largely disappointed by the, the, the whole stuff on pensions. It was a big giveaway to very wealthy people. Yeah, that which the Conservatives have had form for in the past, of course. Um, childcare. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting about the childcare stuff. The actual benefits of it are going to be felt by the parents of children who've not only not yet been born, but have not yet been conceived. Because mm. such is the lag and the delay to them being introduced. But um, it was a fairly unspectacular, not a particularly radical budget. There wasn't much showmanship. I nearly puked up when I heard that nonsense about the draft beer stuff being some kind of Brexit beer dividend and I could just see Jonathan Gullis going Rrr! or Lee, you know all them lot the thick right as I call them on this podcast but um but you know they're my hot takes I heard from White Van Man this morning from the Federation of Small Business they're not happy they think it's a budget for big business and not enough for them so yeah. what do you think Nicola you've heard you've heard our hot inexpert views what was your <laughs> Cracking analysis, B. So my sentence, I did my homework. Yeah, yeah, one sentence. Wow, they really know who will vote for them and they aren't wasting a single pound after the election. It's a bit like if you've ever done an environmental impact analysis of an airport, I mean, a bit niche, but let's just go with yeah, go it. Okay. It's perfectly possible to do an environmental impact assessment of an airport without taking into account the planes. Yeah, so you yeah, you just yeah. sort of say Manchester Airport, Enterprise Zone, you're there thinking, oh, right, well, why is the tram going to the middle of this field? And then everybody disappears. So yeah. in some senses, the fact that any uh, financial planning, the graphs just kind of stop, does give you some suggestion that uh, the, the, the next fiscal event is going to be the one which is putting them onto an electioneering fitting for the short campaign. 
So um, in some ways, again, this is high praise, right? Because at least it's competent politically. That's which has been missing. And, and it's very important to point out, nerds out there, that four chancellors that never had a fiscal event, the last chancellor who actually gave a full budget was Rishi Sunak. And that was immediately prior to um, the pandemic. The yeah. rest have all been, I mean, I mean, yeah. Kwasi Kwarteng certainly had his say. I mean, don't get me wrong. But, you know, in terms of the actual theatre of it and the red box and the drink at the dispatch box and all of that, tick, 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 tick. Substantive, yeah, well, I mean, never mind. Yeah. You know. If I sort of drill down a little bit, um, you know, it wasn't an exciting budget, but it was never going to be. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, I think he wears a badge which says I'm boring. Um, if you look at like the overriding message, I thought they were a bit at the beginning and uh, it was great news. We're not going into a technical recession. And I thought, wow, if that's as high as the bar is, but that that really is quite low, you know, because um, and that's largely down to the fact that um, energy prices have dropped because energy prices aren't as bad as they once were. And it was almost like and this is a point that Keir Starmer made. This is great. You're basically telling us it's not as bad as you told us it was going to be at the start six months ago. They have made progress, to be fair, to give them credit, but so have other European economies as well. Um, what about the, the message that by the end of the year we're going to have inflation at 2.9%? We were speaking off air before and we were talking about um, the fact that the, the super rich, because of the way the pensions were changed, so people can save more money, the idea was that they're going to try and bring people back into work, whether that's the super rich, the consultants, the doctors who retire because there's no point in saving into their pension, or whether that's working, particularly working mums who can't afford childcare as well. Um, but but what about the expectation level that was set? You know, inflation is going to be at 2.9%, but there were strikes and there are still are strikes all this week with junior doctors. Do you want my big rant on why a technical recession is largely irrelevant to the North or to the real economy? You're not allowed to look at us. For the purpose of yeah. recording, Nicola, <clears throat> you're not allowed to look at us, which should be an excuse not yeah, to look yeah. at you us. Can, you can use your hands and point to us. We don't, we don't mind. We're not, yeah. we're not bothered about that. Um, no, I think it's important to describe to the listeners, for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know, what a technical recession is and how people, how, how actually the economy makes people feel on a daily basis in different parts of the country. We're a very... I suppose a very disparate economy. You know, so much wealth resides in the southeast of England. Um, so the idea that not a technical recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. We're going to get one quarter of negative growth, maybe another quarter of stagnation or going up a little bit. Is that fair to say? You, you explain it. You're the economist. I'm, I'm the journalist with my hot takes. So, um, so the way that I've been explaining it recently and, and using my red flag alert data, get me plug in is it's a K, the economy. Doesn't matter what function you look at, doesn't matter what um, variable you put into it, it's a K. So the middle is like a flat line. And that flat line, this is the point about the stagnation, the secular stagnation since 2008. Since the banking crisis, we haven't had more than a percentage point of growth reliably in this economy. Now, up by half a percent, down by half a percent, that does not matter at all to most of us, right? In fact, even down a percentage point, up a percentage point, that doesn't filter through to prices or to the pound in your pocket or any of that. What then is happening, So, but however, whether you're in recession or not becomes this obsession. And, and there's always a thing about always be um, nervous, be on guard when 
um, any politician is is overly focused on one economic indicator. So, mm. so the period when the right. public sector borrowing requirement is the only number yeah. that matters. Even things like the job numbers. That there's there's all there's all kinds of stories wrapped up. Now, for, I would argue. Um, as an advocate for the real economy, i.e. not just the bubble economy, not just speculation, and the North, as in the non-stronger part of the economy, um, that up one, down one doesn't really matter because we're down many points in many sectors all the time and we're never getting near the line, right? So whether you're looking at them from a spatial perspective or a sectoral perspective, the story is always more complicated, which is where the K comes in. So the K, you've got a line that goes up, 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 away from the center and a line that goes down, down, down. And that is a that divergence, it's always partly true, but if you're not concentrating on the high and the low legs of your kicking K, there's something wrong with what you're doing in the middle. And being reliant um, as, as a country on a national average obscures both actually the high of the K and the low of the K. And from a Northern perspective, what you want to be looking at all the time, what does good look like where? What is growing where and why? And can we get some support in there, business support, for access to finance, support for management, the things that make businesses grow? And although, I mean, I, I would never... Uh, directly challenge a statement made from the dispatch box i mean that would be ridiculous right but jeremy hunt's second this is a this is a budget for growth no it isn't it isn't a budget for growth because it doesn't have a plan for growth it did have measures and 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 you know reasonable measures but um with one sort of stroke of the pen the leps going now the leps let's just just pause we'll pause and analyze that in the in a moment because yeah. regional economic practice um, the levers that the that, that, that um, mayors or governors, as they might be able to be called in the future, I, I picked that up on the in in the statement this morning. Um, they've changed, haven't they? From what? <laughs> well, as you said, Nicola, uh, local enterprise partnerships being abolished, being replaced by uh, you know economic delivery boards, or uh, you know. Well, that's a problem outside of the core cities, right? So there's a number of different ways to look at it. Yeah, so Manchester and West, Greater Manchester and West Midlands combined, mayoral combined authorities got very generous um, devolution deals called deeper devolution, where they got pretty much everything they've been asking for on transport, economic development strategy, a lot of which they've been doing already anyway, and and skills devolution about you know being able to in, implement effectively an apprenticeship program at a local level in partnership with colleges, training providers, local employers, right? All good. And a deepening of the devolution trajectories for Greater Manchester and Greater Birmingham, and a reward for the hard yards put in by Andy Burnham and Andy Street. Yeah. Yes. However, However, out with. I love that word. Out. Which, which word do you out hate? Which word don't you like? Uh, that's quite a lot of words. I don't <laughs> know. Okay, Swear words. Don't tell me any of those words, otherwise <laughs> I'll have with. to... Out, I like out with. Out, out with, I like that word. Out yeah. with greater, greater Manchester, where we sit today, and Greater Birmingham, the, the conurbation to our south, the second city of the UK. Let's, mm. All right, let's leave that where it is. Coventry and Wolverhampton once again cruelly overlooked. The point mm. is, is that... Um, that's the that's the Super League. That's the Premier League of economic development anyway, right? So you're going with the grain of where some growth is, and that's fine. 
But places that haven't got themselves organized into combined authorities and places that don't have mayors and places that are struggling with local government reorganization and places that actually could do with as much economic development, if not more, than the core cities. This has been a um, there's been an attempt to ride both horses on this for a long time, right? So in some ways, this is satisfying the kind of county constituency mm -hmm. that would much rather go back to a to counties because they are, um, you know, big and can prevent housing being built, and a kind of so there's all, there's always yeah. there's always a tension with this stuff, and 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 I know that you'll like this, Michael. The um, you know, in some ways, it's a very uh, low. Uh, attention rework of the 1832 reform act where <laughs> you look at where the power sits in the economy and you reward the polity accordingly right so we've always been a land economy not a business economy so by finally starting to strengthen and support gm and greater birmingham properly there's a little bit of that in there yeah. 1832 reform act anyone done your a homework 1832 yeah, I hosted an event yesterday at Salisbury Hall near Preston, which is uh, 1325. Mm. So I can beat your 1835 or 1832 with a 13... Did you see the priest holes? Yeah, uh, I, I didn't see that. I didn't see that, but uh, I did see my joke book was in there somewhere. It's, that's how old it is. Um, you know, you talk about uh, the West Midlands, and you talk about Greater Manchester. Yeah. And Michael is, is much more of an expert on all things devolution than I am. The way I sort of see it is that the big two get bigger, Whereas the rest of the elected mayors must think to themselves, hang what about us? Would that be fair? Well, let's start. I mean, the mayors didn't fall from the sky either. So one of my favorite academic papers of all time is entitled, the snappily entitled, if mayors are the answer, what was the question? And actually, I mean, the mayoralty was held out a long time in GM because the feeling was that the distributed model of AGMA, et cetera, actually worked better in a polycentric um urban area right because otherwise so the whole and if you think and again say you know i i too have academic work on this so manchester <laughs> work in progress always a work in progress but the, the point is that the the fix at, at that time with peter smith in wigan as the biggest cheerleader from the periphery of the city region made an awful lot of difference to the manchester's progress towards having power at the right scale at the scale that it feels it can operate and I'm just seeing you write down Selnek. Yeah, bring back Selnek. <laughs> so again, we're, we're retreating now into the absolute nerd heaven of Selnek because there is always an argument, right, that, and in fact, an argument that was somewhat um, re resurrected by Peel, which was that actually that, that it's not a Liverpool city region and a Manchester city region. The housing market and the wealth in this part of the country melts down from the big cities into Cheshire and Lancashire, yeah. Southeast Lancashire, Northeast, Northeast Cheshire, Cheshire, become then a wealth generator yeah. for the whole region. It's a different way. It's a, it's, a, it's a planner term that we like to throw around. But the thing is that there are always other axes and it depends on your ambition. You know, mm. I want a chancellor to stand up and be like, ah, my people, right, we're going to make the most amazingly vibrant district in the country, Bradders Field Port and build... Um, fast rail between Bradford, Huddersfield, Staley Bridge to Stockport and make that the greenest, best, snazziest corridor in Europe, right? That's the kind of ambition that you need from a chancellor yeah. is not just taking the economic um, 
scenario that you find yourself in and trying to tinker a bit. You need some vision. So something like that, a complete, you know, a spatial configuration based around either cell neck or Bradersfield Staley port, as the, you heard it here first. That's great. Um, because because you, you need to, con and, then that, and that's why we get so obsessed by a railway across an HS2 up and down is because they genuinely transform the economic geography of the country. And... No, listen, or, carry on talking. That's just an indication I'd like to talk next, that's all. <laughs> all right. I, I, I don't want to talk for the sake of it. I want to tap into that amazing brain of yours and, and, and just point you in a couple of directions. So there's a couple of things that weren't mentioned in the budget. Jeremy Hunt was very light on describing departmental budgets. Now, that's literally what the Treasury is there for to do. Yes, it's a lever and a coordinator of economic policy and fiscal policy, but it also divvies up which departments get money. And there was no talk about how much money the NHS gets, no talk about a different local government settlement. There was a little bit on defence in the context of the war in Ukraine, which again, the war in Ukraine, which a little bit more, again, of a, of a kind of a, a global foreign policy sort of conversation to place the Tories on the side of So this was, was a critique of the, right? of the Rishi um, number 11 operation. Yeah. It used, the joke used to be, can someone go and tell Rishi that he's the chief executive of the public sector because mm -hmm. he's forgotten? Yeah. And I think that there was some of that. Yeah. And, you know, if you think of a brown budget, not saying it would be better, Chris, just for yeah. balance. Okay. Um, he used to name check, you know, teaching support. He used to name check all the kind of all the public service professions because that was in his DNA, yeah. but that's why you do it, right? Yeah. Whereas we're so far away from that conceptualization of a political economy, which is a um, an embodied sort of sum of the activities yeah. of private and public sectors. Yeah. It's numbers on a spreadsheet. And if the numbers on the spreadsheet are right, you win. And if the numbers on the spreadsheet are wrong, you lose. And that is partly a consequence of having a lot of kind of management consultants and VC people in and around yeah. the treasury. But the real economy, right? So your white men, man, van, men, van, white, white man, van, white, white men van, man. in vans yeah. are, are you know, there is a real, they are wealth creators, they are work, there's nothing for them in the budget, as you say, because that's not it in the minds of its big, big spreadsheet, big numbers, uh, investment here, investment there, wiggle this, change that margin, and voila. What, well, what I'm talking about is a spatialized and kind of embodied political economy under which the functions of, yeah. the, of the economy are being organized yeah. and, and as you say then being governed i mean I, I don't mind so much about departmental budgets except that that it, it, it kind of if you what was our tesla quote chris before oh your tesla quote was um in fact i wrote it down it was so good you said something that lines up every judgment is a confession yeah so every judgment is a confession anytime anybody chooses to to, to governors to choose a budget is a series of choices jeremy hunt's confession and this is you know you know, maybe slightly highfalutin, was that he doesn't see himself as the chief executive of the public sector, was that he doesn't see himself as having anything to say. There was seven and a half, 750, how many people were on strike yesterday? 750,000, yeah. three quarters of a million, including my sister, a teacher, out on strike. Now, it's not that he didn't have anything for them. He's making the confession that he doesn't even see them. It's, yeah. not, it's not that he's... You know, so then he's hoping that ev all those claims, those 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 properly balloted for claims for help with the cost of living crisis by improving public sector pay terms and conditions 
are invisible to the government. And I'm no expert. I might be a little bit of an expert, but that doesn't suggest to me that they think there's a single person in that public sector that would ever vote Tory. So at this point, that's what I mean about they yeah, know who yeah. they're aiming at. The Wealth creators yeah. and returners to work. So you're kind of blue collar conservative mm -hmm. vote and a kind of wealth creator vote, and actually everything in between, which for our own amusement is every economic function that we come into contact yeah. with. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So instead of saying we will provide local authorities with an extra pot of funding in order to tackle infrastructure issues in their local areas as they see fit, he called it the pothole initiative because everybody who drives their white van over a pothole and it ruins their tires, they just think, we hate the government. People, so it's a direct nod to them. The other thing I want to ask that he didn't talk about, HS2. So the biggest infrastructure project this country's got at the moment, it's been debated all week because Labour have produced a leaked report that says it's going to make no difference. You know, I'm sure we're, we're going to be in agreement on this. But um, no mention of HS2, major infrastructure project but that's in, in his budget. And that's because they sort of parked that with this latest set of reviews. Now, yeah. I'm... I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, a, I like infrastructure. I think it helps. The the HS2 argument is easy to kind of you model into or out of becoming. Um, I would argue, but if we do not build HS2, we are sending a signal that we cannot do anything of any scale in this country, which is why. Mm. And interestingly enough, kind of where I grew up, all around sort of Princess Risborough. Um, sort of end of the metropolitan line has already been dug up for HS2. So they've taken the electoral pain in the home counties on it. It has gone yeah. through the Chilterns. It is, and if they, if we do not stick to it, it really just sends the signal that we can't do infrastructure full stop. And we essentially, we can't, but that's not the point. And that matters even more than normal in the context of, um, again, this is another well-trodden rant about the way that you build infrastructure feeds back into them building a polity at that scale. So GM is possible because of the tram. The tram is possible because of GM. And you, it's, a, it's an iterative process. Mm. There's lots and lots of cities around the world trying to, to reimagine the way that you get people into work and out again. And you need to devise a governance structure at that yeah. scale. And the geopolitics of infrastructure, I'm always talking about this, the Belt and Road Initiative from China is a completely new economic geography that we've been kind of choosing to ignore under which China have carved a completely different set of paths around the world mm. whilst we've all been obsessing about other things. Like so the building yeah. of infrastructure is I... the point of entry yeah. for an economy that is, God yeah. forbid, moving. Can I come in there, if I may? Um, because what I want to try, and there's so much to dissect, and, um, and it's a really enjoyable conversation, but I want to pinpoint a couple of things. One is the whole jobs and the work situation. So yesterday I hosted an event, spoke to a couple of uh, nurseries, a couple of children's nurseries, a couple of bosses. And they were explaining to me that there's no such thing really. The word free childcare doesn't really exist. So the taxpayer picks up the bulk of the tab, but the nurseries don't get all the money back. So they have to meet the shortfall, which comes from parents. It's one of the reasons why so many nurseries have closed over the years. So it was clear, and you mentioned this, that the budget was aimed at the core 
Tory votes, um, you know, electorate. So childcare was always going to be a big issue. And, and it's interesting because some people think that uh, he's basically filched a lot of the ideas from Bridget, um, Bridget Phillipson, you know, the shadow education secretary. So a couple of facts, 30 hours of free healthcare, sorry, first, free healthcare, childcare. 30 hours of free childcare for working parents in England, expanded to cover one and two year olds. That's going to be rolled out from April 2024. So there was you know, loud groans from the Labour side of uh, the Commons yesterday. But in fairness to the Conservatives, it will take some time to implement that as well. Um, various other initiatives around trying to get older people, the over 50s, back to work. A £63 million programme, which is dropping the ocean to encourage retirees over the age of 50 back to work. They're called returnerships um, and skill um, skills boot camps as well. As somebody who is 50, I can't see a situation where I'm going to give up work in order to come back to work. But um, that, that struck me. And the other thing I want to talk about, which is the thing that did attract the sort of controversy, is the idea of pensions. So the, the really, and they're talking in, in particular about the NHS and a lot of well-paid consultants and doctors have left the NHS because in very simple terms they can't pay into their pension pot above a certain amount so it's not tax efficient for them to carry on working so they retire at the age of 50 to go on the golf course so they were three things that stood out for me if we talk if we take childcare first then the return to work for the over 50s and then we talk about pensions what's your take on that Nicola? So the notion that something would be announced in a budget and it not having been properly fleshed out with the the um industry and the businesses in, in involved <laughs> again it's very common but the childcare delivery um infrastructure as we all know is a network of private nurseries that pop up in anywhere any premises that can get inspected right and i would argue that you connect that the the child care workforce and the social care workforce are the same kind of workforce right both of which looking after our most precious people our older people than our children and both of which are largely minimum wage um, and in both care homes for older people and nurseries are suffering all the consequences of rising energy costs and all the rest of it into their business models. Yeah. And, and the tight labor market. And the tight labor market. Now this is, yes, we want the, um, the ultimately we're saying, yes, improve your family's income by being able to go work beyond the home women who can then expect between 25 and 35,000 in wages, because then you're paying 15,000 for your childcare to pay into another household, a lower paid household. Mm -hmm. Now, the structures of why childcare can't recruit and retain enough workers for there to be the right ratios for safe and um, kind of in, in exciting Ofsted guaranteed childcare and why care homes, what business model doesn't work is because they are in this labor pool for similar people um, of whom there is a, a limit. And so your overhead cost increases, you're, you're, you can't attract and retain talent. And then a government announcement says, you're gonna have two more years worth of children going into that set of infrastructure. So I would hope that the childcare announcement will be properly funded because getting the money into those nurseries, literally on every kind of block, is gonna be the implementation point. But as you say very generously, maybe they're working for two years on capacity towards working up to being able to accommodate 
children, m- many more children. This nursery that I spoke to, they charge £60 a day. So £60 a day times five, you know, 300 quid, times 52 year, weeks of the year. And the average cost of childcare is around £14,000. But what they do is they offer extracurricular stuff. So they teach the young people French and foreign languages. They pay that themselves. You know, because what they want to do, they don't just want to offer the bare minimum. They want to actually advance them. Um, and that's the value added that they offer. But but they said to me, and they weren't trying to pick themselves up. They were saying, you know, a lot of nurseries literally offer the bare minimum because they can't afford to go over and above. Yeah, because it's very, it's very difficult to make a profit anywhere in the economy. Yeah. And making a profit in a nursery or in a care home where you're so reliant on... Uh, public, your public sector, yeah. you know, it, it's really, really tough. Yeah. My thought was good luck finding a nursery place as well. Yeah. <laughs> well. Particularly so many are closing. I mean, I, again, if you're being really mean, the fact that it's pushed to April 2024 means to never because mm. both the Conservatives and Labour have received the budget as if, you, you know, this is your last chance yeah. and in 18 months' time there will be an election. Yeah. So anything that's after that point, as I say, it fell into a hole like yeah. an, like the environmental impact assessment of an airport without planes. Just <clears> very good. Listen, so talk about, uh, you asked about pensions as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, and the return it, to work for the, the over return 50s, to work. yeah. Return to work for the over 50s. So I've been doing a thing all week on Radio 5 Live, apologies, other broadcasters are available, called Fantasy Chancellor. <laughs> and we had people ring up and affirming only my belief that when you ask the great British public for policy suggestions, they are always better and more radical than what the wonkery can come up with at any given moment. So the first guy rang in yesterday morning and said, um, well, I just want, I'm not going to go out to work for an hour for a tub of butter and half a day for half a tank of petrol. (laughs) You know, the point is, is that yes, this this missing million of over 50s um, is, it's, it, it, it covers some of the richest and high, most highly skilled people in the economy, but it also covers some of some people that have done physical late hard labor for a lot of years. And um, in some ways, it, it, this is the sort of end point of the baby boomers having kind of gone, they've changed every station they've ever gone through as a train. I there's a great quote from somebody I once heard in the town hall, but I, I don't know, Chris, I don't think, and I am not, in my 50s, God forbid. I always think I'll be doing a bit of this stuff as long as I'm alive, right? I'll be doing a bit of commentary or a bit of writing or a bit of something because that's a nice job to have, right? If you're saying to people, you've got to stand in Greg's into your 60s, that's less appealing. And by the way, Greg's is an excellent employer and brilliant contributor to the Northeast economy. There's nothing, it's nothing sniffy. I'm just saying purely for being on your feet for eight hours, in and out of ovens, doing okay. customer things. Or in the care stuff. sector. Or, or exactly. Which or my mum in a, worked into, into, right into a Or 70s. in a nursery. Like you don't, yeah. you know, the things are connected, right? Yeah. And also, let's face it, that over 50s, um, not only is it the bank of mum and dad that are absolutely key in keeping the whole thing moving in terms of property, but it's granny daycare as well. I mean, most working families that I know, it's a mixture of private provision, preschool, then thank God when you get to school, you actually finally, you get to take a big jump in household disposable. But there's grannies at every school gate in the country, at every nursery in the country, doing the dropping off and the picking up and the in-between. And so a lot of the, and and that, that, and again, it comes back to a much broader point about um, emotional labor and the economics of caring 
uh, labor have never been on the balance sheet, right? Because <laughs> the whole thing just collapses, right? But running a family, not least, if you're 50 or 55, you could be caring for older relatives and you could be grannying. Mm. I mean, and that's, and God forbid, you could also be, um, you know, you've got, let's talk about the sandwich generation. So mm. my generation is a sandwich generation under which my parents are aging. And as I am child free, but my nieces, for example, are 12, 12 year old twin girls. So that puts us in a sandwich. We're doing everything up and down. If you ever costed what it mm. costs to get a family to maturity, you know, it's like the bumblebee. It doesn't really fly when you actually yeah. put it all on the, on the balance sheet. Yeah. Right. Final point then, Chris, on your, on your trio of fantastic questions. You're asking about the, the big giveaway to, um, to very wealthy doctors and consultants. I was consultants. looking at the numbers, yeah. You know, um, there's a cap on the amount of workers that, uh, you know, that workers can accumulate in pension savings over their lifetime having been, I think, 1.07 million, which seems like a huge amount. The, expect, the expectation was that was going to be raised, but then he surprised us. It wasn't a budget of surprises, but he announced that was going to be abolished completely. Um, it's probably worth just explaining that, that, that because you get, um, you get contributions from your employers as well, once you get above that threshold, it's almost not worth doing because you end up paying a tax bill at the end of it. So he's basically saying you can abolish that. So if you are 55 and you want to pay extra money into your pension, so you can leave it to your family when you pop your clogs. You can do that now. So his idea, his expectation is that these people are going to suddenly say, you know what, cancel the golf on Wednesday, cancel my, you know, uh, you know, my timeshare. I'm going to go back to work as a consultant. That's the hope. It, you know, that, that's, that's as I read it. What do you read it as, Nicola? Well, I think that was what the, the lobby journalists were told. But again, that's a problem looking for, that's a solution looking for a problem, if you ask me. What really is going to happen is that people that haven't got pension entitlements because they've been busy building businesses when they're younger can then put any form of capital gains into pension pots as they get a little bit older. Yeah. That's the, what it's for. It's the change in nature of pensions as well. There used to be, you know, defined benefit or final salary pensions that employers would pay into. They're slowly diminishing. And what is increasing is effectively a large savings account that you can draw on at a retirement age. Sure. And that age has dropped to 55 following George Osborne's earlier legislation. And, and, very, very perceptive. Thank and you. looking at, and again, with all these things, we're talking about different stages of life and your yeah. different need for capital, your different need for employment, your different need for, you know, the, uh, what, um, these are all marginal kind of things. What I wel welcome is a conversation about working lives, about training, yeah. about what is the economy. And that's what I mean. It, in terms of a budget for growth, <clears throat> you would be, taking apart the elements of what makes a business grow and you would tackle each of them in turn, right? Including local access to finance, local economic development. It feels like this is, it's, all, it's almost like a very complicated circuit board and a few lamps are lighting up yeah. on it. Right. But the actual circuitry itself isn't Blackpool Illuminations or yeah. whatever. It's kind of slightly disconnected which is a consequence, as I say, of seeing the economy in almost purely sort of transactional spreadsheet terms and rather than as the kind of um, combination of all the life choices of everybody in the, in the country and beyond. Brilliant. I've got one final question for you, Nicola. Are we heading for a banking crisis? We've had Silicon Valley Bank uh, it's, uh, over the weekend was rescued and obviously Jeremy Hunt's taking a lot of the plaudits for coordinating the government intervention on that and the brokerage of the eventual rescue by HSBC Bank, uh, in, in the UK at least. But taking a global look at this, there's headlines that we've been picking up this morning. I'm too exhausted to have understood what they mean. 
Credit Suisse in some sort of trouble. What's going on there, Nicola? So I did have the slightly dual experience of watching the budget on one screen and watching the markets on the other screen. And the markets tanked yesterday uh, worse than they have as a result of the war in Ukraine and worse than they did even for the misadventure of the mini budget, which created a huge market slide. Now, I'm not... No, I'm not saying, and nobody else really would be saying that um, we're looking at the kind of car crash of 2008 where everything like the Blues Brothers style goes down, you know, put piles into each other. What I think I'm arguing is it's much more like um, if you're on the M6 and everybody's parked and someone goes into the back of the fast lane when it's stationary and you can probably write off more cars that way, but it'll be slow. So Silicon Valley Bank smashed into the back of Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse has bounced forward and they've written off the few cars in front, right? right? But what is endlessly fascinating and very unresolved, some of the issues around Silicon Valley Bank are to do with the specifics of raising finance in business. So we did the analysis over the weekend at Red Flag Alert and we looked and it's quite common in tech that um, if you invest in a company in its early stages, you'd hold a debenture over that company. And we looked and there was nearly a thousand in the UK that were in that position, as in were tied to Silicon Valley Bank and 53 in Manchester, Greater Manchester. So um, the notion that it's all long, long time ago and far, far away, that's not right. We've got uh, companies in this city who are going to be experiencing difficulties around liquidity. But then, yes, the Treasury came up with an elegant solution. HSBC bought the, the bank lock stock. Good. However, when we looked at then that, um, the, that loan book of Silicon Valley Bank, because some of it has been to companies to fuel growth, so don't get me wrong, like it's fine to dip below the threshold for being an asset-backed company if you're burning through a lot of capital to grow. But... I would argue that possibly this loan book doesn't match HSBC's usual lending criteria. No, of course it isn't. No. Because they... I'm Precisely not, the reason people go to Silicon Valley Bank in the first Exactly, because they understand yeah. that going from a startup yeah. to a scale-up is going to involve a cash burn. Yeah. So this could either be mainstream banking starting to understand a bit more about some yeah. of those business models, or, as other people have suggested, it could be... Uh, a different form of junk bond for mainstream finance. And we know that they can have contagion in lots of ways. So so I would say we're, we're not in a banking crisis and let's not panic, but we are on the M6 on the in the fast lane and we're not moving at the moment. And if a big Eddie Stobart lorry <coughs> should come careering around the corner, some of the damage to the, each individual car is very difficult to predict. And I think is going to be possibly more important in the next period than anything that came out of the House of Commons yesterday. So one Chris, thing, Nicola, and then we've got to wrap up. Yeah, just because Nicola, um, and this is a technical point, but you wouldn't technically, an Eddie Stobart lobby wouldn't come around a corner on a motorway because no. they're fundamentally straight, aren't they? <laughs> That's all it for this Northern Spin <laughs> Extra podcast with our special guest, Nicola Headlop. Nicola, thank you so much for your insights. I'd re really love to do this on a regular basis. You really do shine, shine, shine light into places of darkness that I simply don't understand sometimes. Uh, anyway, we're also on Apple Podcasts, so please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at, at northern underscore spin one or watch us on YouTube. Thanks once again to our partners at What Media for recording this podcast. Our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, and to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name, as ever, is Michael Taylor. This is Nicola Headlam. And I am Chris McGuire. <laughs>